not often, but sometimes, especially in scripts of a certain uh, age. <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, Eugene O'Neill. everybody welcome back to no script an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts i'm jacob mann christensen and i am jackson nikolai yeah welcome back everybody um we're, we're getting to kind of an exciting moment in the podcast as we kind of wind down the way to another end of a season at uh, the end of season 10 that's right season 10 is, I mean, it's a milestone in everything, you know, and this has been a great season for a lot of reasons, for a lot of cool things that we have had happen. We had a great themed month. We got to talk about some cool scripts. Those things happen every season. And also coming up on our podcast is something that happens every season next week. And we're, we're as Jackson said, we're getting right up to the end of the season. So this is a little later than we sometimes do it. But the, the guest episode kind of moves all around. So it's not that out of It's power, true. But it's like the second to last episode of the season is coming up. I don't know. I don't know if you can believe that or not, but we're very near the end. And so next week is our special guest episode. Yes, indeed. And it is my turn to have a conversation with a special guest. And this particular season, we're going to be welcoming Hannah Barker Nikolai <laughs> onto the show. A very special guest. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be welcoming Hannah Barker Nikolai onto the show, who I am married to. Um, and uh, yeah, ex excited to have that conversation. We're going to be talking about Frozen by Brian E. Uh, Lavery and and yeah, just excited for that that conversation. Hannah's a poet, a theater artist, um, a writer, and a lot of this play leans into the work that she does. And I'm excited to kind of have that uh, have that extra facet to get to talk about in in on the No Script show and about a really uh, a significant play for that as well. Yeah, we, we love the guest episodes because they're just a chance to sort of hear somebody else talk about plays. While Jackson and I love to do it, it's just the two of us and we'd go, you know, we'd do about, you know, 18 to 20 episodes a season depending on how the weeks work out. And so that's that's a lot of episodes, man, to yeah. just hear us talk. So <laughs> we break it up with one guest episode every season. I'm excited to hear Jackson and Hannah have a conversation. As Jackson said, and you may be skeptical, because he is married to her, but I can say as someone not married to him, but she is a very uh, capable, exciting poet, writer, theater artist. She will have some very great things to say about that play, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating conversation. It's a totally different dynamic. I think you, well, your mother-in-law has been on the show before because uh, Karen taught theater for a number of years. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think the dynamic of someone that you're married to will be quite different. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a new one for sure. Excited to kind of see how it, how it all works. Um, uh, Hannah and I have done other podcasts before, but not about theater. So this will be this will be a fun uh, a fun uh, one to get to chat about. And uh, yeah, uh, get excited for that. But don't worry, Jacob will return. It's like the Avengers end credits. Jacob will return. 
<laughs> uh, for the end of the season, uh, the last episode of the season before we take our summer break. That's right. We're we're nearly there, everybody. Two more episodes in the season, and then we take our summer break, and we'll be back for season 11 sometime in the fall. We always hold beginnings and endings of the season very loosely because life throws a lot of curveballs at you, you know? It's true. And we got to have some buffers <laughs> built in, so we can't tell you exactly when we will be back, but it will be sometime in the late summer, early fall. No script will be back. We'll keep announcing that in the coming episodes so nobody's caught off guard. But we still have three exciting episodes until then, if you include this one. And this one has only begun, and we are talking about a... Uh, just uh, uh, one of those plays that is kind of the characteristic play for a type of play, right? We're talking about like the exemplar of this particular style. We're talking about the exemplar of for this particular type of playwright. And uh, I mean, there is nobody out there who does this better than Anna DeVere Smith. Uh, her play, Fires in the Mirror, is, if, if you are a verbatim theater, if you're a social justice theater, if you are a kind of special uh, devised sort of projects theater maker, thinker, interested in those kinds of things, you know Anna DeVere Smith. You probably revere Anna DeVere Smith for what she did for that community. She's an actor and a playwright, and these shows... Uh, all of her incredible series of verbatim shows come out of her work both as an actor and a playwright. So although we'll discuss her as a playwright today, she acted these shows. She premiered right. these shows. The videos of her performing in Fires in the Mirror, I'll talk about in the context session, they were amazingly captured, uh, which is a huge benefit to the theater community. Her performances in Fires in the Mirror are seminal performances for verbatim theater artists. I mean, this is the person who built the house. You know what I mean? And that yeah. <laughs> as an actor and a playwright. And it's a great privilege to be at her play today. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about Anna DeVere Smith for the second time on the podcast, uh, House Arrest being the, the other time that we have uh, talked about a play of hers. And yeah, just just the, the way that, yeah, verbatim theater, oral history, all that sort of uh, really unique kind of I'm going to talk about it in the episode, so I'm not going to say too much about it now, but the sort of like way that you can uh, witness and attest to people's real life stories with theater is a really unique thing um, and and can do it kind of like with some generosity and also some critique. Uh, it's all, all of those features of verbatim theater are on full display in this this script, and I'm excited to get to talk about it because it's a really important piece. Yeah, and it's a piece. I mean, I'm stealing from myself here because I'm doing context, so no big deal. I, it this play is like it's back. I mean, I don't know how oh, else yeah. to say it. Like it premiered in 1991, and it was what it is, which is an incredible seminal piece of verbatim theater for the world. And everybody, I mean, if you follow this again at all, you know already know the play. You know Anna Devere Smith. And then it, you know, it it's verbatim theater. So it's not like it's performed everywhere every day, right? We talked about Miss Julie and the Phantom of the Opera as the past two episodes. Like this play is not those plays in terms of right. <laughs> productions, you know. And it's, right, it's still right. very produced as a piece of verbatim theater. But, it, you know, it's, it's not Miss Julie or Phantom of the Opera. But <laughs> it's back. I mean, when we get to the context section, you'll see like in the past five years, it's like suddenly everywhere. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. The, the the themes in it are still um, still in conversation thirty some years after it being written. So so yeah, it, it makes uh, makes a lot of sense that it is that it is back um, for for those reasons. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm excited to get to talk about it with there. With there's, we're, it's, we're already starting to ping pong and pinball and uh, start start to have some <laughs> some uh, good conversation about. It. Before we jump into the real meat of the conversation, though, I wanted to take just a second and say thank you to all of our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash/NoScriptPodcast for being patrons of the show. We're coming along to the end of season ten, and it's been just so fun to get to kind of build this community, have these conversations, be a part of y'all's days whenever you listen to this particular uh, podcast and and yeah, just get to continue to talk about some of theater's best scripts. If you're looking for a way to help out the show, be a part of the show, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast is an awesome way to do that. If you visit over there, you'll see a number of different tiers of membership, of patronship, um, and the lowest one being just $1, which we have committed to over 10 seasons. We have not changed that entry level, and at that entry level, you get access to a lot of cool stuff, like uh, patron-only posts, early access to scripts that we're doing, a little bit of advanced uh, plan of what what, what it is that we're going to be doing on the show. We'll likely, over our break, still be posting occasionally over on Patreon, um, and so, so it's a great place to hang out great place to both uh uh kind of be a part of the community of no script in another way and also help out the show enormously we love getting to do the show we love getting to have these conversations and alas it is not a free endeavor and so the patrons make it happen so if you're looking for a way to help out the show and be a part of the no script community head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there and now back to the script here we go Hey, all right. So we've already done a play by Anna Devere Smith, as Jackson said. That play was House Arrest, a fascinating play about the sort of relationship between the presidency and the public and and the way in which the president's life is a public-facing life and what that does for leadership, for personality, uh, but also for our perception of our leader, that they live their life in such a public way, that they are kind of a celebrity alongside being a political leader um, and, you know, having these very serious jobs, uh, that they also have to have this celebrity alongside of that. Anyway, a, a great, fascinating play. Um, I love that it's so specific and so detailed and so interesting. Those things characterize everything Anna Devere Smith does. This play, Fires in the Mirror, is is in line with that sort of part of her career, the creation of these pieces of verbatim theater. She is... I mean, the person, maybe besides K.J. Sanchez, you know, together they are the people for pr- conducting uh, rich, rigorous interviews with people of all stripes. We're talking everyday folks who are not unnamed are in this play. And we're talking the Reverend Al Sharpton is in this play. I mean, big time figures and all up and down and, and other playwrights. George C. Wolfe features in this play. And, and so uh, conducting these rich, rigorous interviews 
And then taking those interviews and putting together excerpts directly from the interviews. I'm just giving a basic overview of verbatim theater for those who aren't with us. And put, taking excerpts from those interviews, stitching them together into a uh, – Anna DeVere Smith performs, as a, performs them as a one-person show. You don't actually have to do that, but that's how she performs them. Um, a, these excerpts from interviews, so they're real words from real people. And Anna DeVere Smith is – as an actor, incredible at the way in which she embodies those people. I mean, she does it's it's almost impossible to describe the way yeah. in which she is able to put on real people completely step into the way they speak, the way they think, the way their bodies work differently than her body, the way that their faces work differently than her face, the speech pattern. I mean, it's incredible. Again, this uh, particular show was documented as a sort of like television movie um, for American Playhouse in, in and that was in 93. The fact that they did that is, I said this in our little intro conversation, is a huge amazing blessing for the theater for us to have those performances from Anna Devere Smith documented is it's an unspeakable benefit uh, and yeah. un, maybe unspeakable is not right. I mean, you can't put a price on, you can't quantify, you can't, there's no description that adequately describes how valuable having those documentations are. Um, so I, I mean, 20 and 30, I guess, years later, thanks American Playhouse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> George C. Wolfe, interestingly, just a little tidbit who features in the play. Again, he's a playwright director, famous figure in American uh, drama. He uh, directed the show, the, the television movie in which he was a character. So that's I don't know, <laughs> kind of a fascinating, weird little thing to go on. Of course, uh, that played on PBS. So that's just a little bit of kind of what it is. Jackson will describe the the actual sort of events and, and and what goes on to make it what it is. As with all of Anna Devere Smith's stuff, it is uh, an investigation of something real. So this is a real event. I'll let Jackson take on that part of it. This play premiered in 1991, which is the same year as the event. The event that Jackson will tell you about was in August. This play premiered in December. I mean, we're talking five months later and thinking about like the amount of work that Anna Devere Smith put in, in those five months to mount this. Um, so that was uh, George Wolfe's again, he's, he's going to feature a bunch, I guess he has this thing or did called the festival of new voices. That's where it premiered in December. It's actual technical world premiere was, uh, the next May in 92 at the New York Shakespeare Pest festival. Since then it's been produced all over. We're talking places like the American repertory theater, the McCarter theater, Brown university, Stanford university, uh, the Melbourne international arts festival. Weirdly, Australia does feature in the play uh, because of the real event that happened. I guess we'll learn a little bit about that. Th those were all sort of your, the classic productions of this show. Um, a lot of universities do it, and they do it not as a one-person show, but as a, an ensemble show because there's like 20-some-odd people that uh, their interviews make up the excerpts. You could cast 10 actors, and they could each play two or three of them. And it's an incredible different kind of acting challenge to play real people uh, talking the way they really talk instead of you know the sort of character creation that we think makes up acting. I already talked about the television movie. Uh, I want to talk just briefly about the recent productions and then a couple of awards. 
this is, I mean, this is not a, a total list, but just in the past four years, in 2019, there was an off-Broadway revival at the Signature Theater featuring Michael Benjamin Washington. His interviews about, he, he did it as the one-person thing, so he played all of the characters. His interviews about doing it and Anna Devere Smith being in the room to help them make it. I mean, hmm. he's of a different body than Anna Devere Smith. I mean, he has a male body and she's a female body. So the the, the way in which that, is cha- that, that changes production and performance for those two people, but also for him to sort of sit in the room with her, uh, she who made the show, who, who wrote it and originally performed it and now is just there as a consultant. I mean, she wasn't directing. She was just there. And he got to, I mean, it's just incredible. Listen to some of the interviews about, uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, 2021, during the pandemic, theatrical outfit in Atlanta produced a live stream production to 2022 in Hartford. Of course, The Long Wharf did it. Uh, 2022, in, in, in the summer of 2022, Theater J in D.C. did it. Uh, and there's a couple of other uh, less known theaters that did it as well. I mean, it's, it's back in some way, in part because the... The tensions in Crown Heights are not gone, um, and in fact, we're inflamed recently by other stuff that's gone on, so that's part of it. Uh, this play received the uh, Drama Desk Award for Outstanding One-Person Show. I don't know who else you could have given it to that year. I don't know, like, what what else was going on in 93 in the world of one-person shows that there was, like, even a competition. <laughs> it's like that. Right. Oh, yeah, that one's it. That's ex- Outstanding One-Person Show, Anna Devere Smith. Whatever she's doing, just give it to her. Uh, yeah, and then of course she also won it later for Twilight Los Angeles, which is probably her most famous play in this style, but not the one we're talking about today. That's, I mean, she's, she's a major figure. It's, it's hard to capture the context of what this play, what her style, what her theatrical thinking did in our first conversation about, um, house arrest. We talked a lot about her her kind of idea of what theater is and how it's made. In fact, she often performs barefoot and why she does that. I don't know that we'll do those discussions today just in an effort not to repeat, but all of that from last time is true here now as well. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So many cool things about how she, yeah, how she performs and all, all the things. Excited to kind of jump into the conversation. I'm going to give you just a little bit of synopsis just to start us on the same, uh, mostly the same spot. Um, it's worth noting I'm going to very briefly synopsize this play and the actual event that it is documenting. Um, if you want to learn more about the event, A, read the play. The play does a great job about it. There's lots of great resources just within the play, like timelines and things like that. Both timelines for the scope of the play and also the, the my version of the script at least has timelines stretching uh, after the, the premiere of the play into 1992 um, and 93. So, so definitely... Uh, there's, there's plenty of ways to avail yourselves of this information. Um, but I'm going to do my best here to just give you a brief synopsis, first of all, of the event that happened and then the way that the play approaches that event. The event that the play is concerned with is, uh, an event that happened in Crown Heights, Brooklyn in August, on August 19th, 1991. Um, uh, what, what happened was, uh, there's, there's two, two communities living very closely together in Crown Heights, uh, a primarily, uh, black community, uh, made up of, of black Americans and also, uh, people of Caribbean descent, um, uh, are, are living in this community and they're living very closely with a Hasidic Jewish community, uh, the, uh, the Lubavitcher community, uh, is, is how I'm going to pronounce it today, um, 
and uh, there's there's been some ongoing tension between that group uh, for for a long time around uh, protection in the community, the way each other interacts, uh, the way the New York Police Department interacts with the two different groups within that community. So there's uh, uh, as this night begins, there's been some tension between them. On this particular night, a uh, grand uh, reb. Mansham Schneerson is driving through the community. He's uh, drive. He is often escorted by a police escort because he is afraid for his life from another group. He's a religious leader of of the Lubavitcher community. Um, and as he's driving through here, his driver Yosef Lifsch uh, is driving quite quickly. He drives through a red light um, and swerves to avoid a car and kills uh, a boy, Gavin Cato, and uh, breaks his sister Angela's leg. Um, uh, on that, the, the, uh, in the in the sort of aftermath of that, there's lots of things. The play talks about a lot of things, but there's there's kind of uh, some some chaos there as people rush to the scene from the different neighborhoods. Ambulances arrive, um, and uh, some of the ambulances are kind of a private ambulance from the uh, from the Hasidic Jewish community there who rush off uh, and the the. The driver and the and the uh, one in the car, and eventually uh, the the boy Gavin Cato is pronounced dead. Um, on that same night, uh, uh, a couple uh, in, in another neighborhood, uh, Yankel Rosenbaum, a, uh, a a doctor who is in uh, from Australia, who is in in the Crown Heights uh, and studying at this kind of like uh, Crown Heights has become this kind of center for this particular Hasidic Jewish community. Um, he uh, is in town, he's studying, and on that night he is uh, stabbed and later dies of his stab wounds uh, about five blocks away from the car accident. A group of, of uh, ten black folks who, uh, uh, so some someone stabs him to death in that group, and he's later pronounced dead at a hospital, and uh, the uh, person who is kind of brought in uh, to face uh, the the... the the court as a result of that murder is um, Limerick Nelson Jr., who later on uh, ends up being acquitted um, of of that murder and uh, and then the fallout of that uh, the 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 various communities um, uh, move and shake the the driver who ended up uh, um, uh, killing Gavin Cato uh, uh, leaves the country um, and uh, leaves the country to Israel and then there's various cries for justice from both sides uh, towards the city as they try to figure out how to get justice for these two killings that happened on the same night. That's my brief summary of the actual event. There's a lot more. There's a lot more uh, kind of aftermath and fallout of it as well. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the the, the result of those two killings which are connected the killing of the fellow from here from Australia is a result of the anger the black community was experiencing at the accidental death of uh the 7 year old uh young Cato and um the result of all that is is days of rioting in Crown Heights, uh, the communities uh, against each other and against the police. And, I mean, it, it's a major the Crown Heights riots are a major moment in New York City history. And, and you know, Anna Devere Smith, amazingly, like we talked about in the context, is able to capture them within five months as a production. Yeah. Sort of just encapsulating this moment in a brilliant way. 
Yeah, and she does that by a series of interviews in the play that she real verbatim interviews that she takes on the character of, um, and writes it as as a one woman show in this case. Though Jacob already said that it's been done other ways, um, but but yeah, embodies these different stories. These these are all a part of her kind of broader set of plays on the road, a search for American character, and you get to see uh, a bunch of American character in in this play. Um, as far as the structure of it goes, I'm gonna really pick up the pace here. Um, um, so we can get into some of the conversation around it. Um, the way the play sets this up is through um, a number of these conversations presented in uh, kind of bracketed chapters, sort of. Chapter isn't a word that is used in here, but there are sort of uh, overarching themes in each of these groupings. There's identity, um, uh, there's mirrors, there's hair. Um, I'll, I'll briefly kind of synopsize just a little bit of what's happening there. Identity in this, in this uh, chapter... They're talking about how America is, is often uh, uh, upheaval uh, or upheaved in terms of how uh, people identify with their identity. Um, so you have a number of short conversations around that theme. Mirrors uh, is a short bracketed section which kind of talks about the mirror as a really interesting tool to see oneself but also see inside some uh, inside oneself. A really interesting conversation with that person. Hair, um, there's an interesting kind of comparison between um, someone from the black community and someone from the Hasidic community and their interactions with how they uh, experience their hair and how it represents a part of uh, their community and their identity. Uh, there's a section called Race, uh, which features a conversation with Angela Davis and kind of goes into the the, the history, uh, the, the the racial history of of America, especially around Black communities. There is uh, Rhythm and Poetry, which is a, a section that talks about. Um, uh, yeah, the the way that that rhythm and and music and rap and and poetry uh, play a part of an identifier of a, of their community. Seven verses um, is starting to kind of build towards what is the going to be the final chapter. You have a number of uh, conversations with some with people like Leonard Jeffries, who is. Um, Involved uh, with the with the the, the production of Roots um, uh, and and yeah so so you so you have all of these kind of stories building building towards uh, an awareness for the theatrical the, the the folks who are there for the night the audience um, of the underlying issues that are happening around the events of Crown Heights. Then we hit Crown Heights, Brooklyn, August 1991, and that is uh, around half of this play. Our conversations with uh, of, uh, a number of people who were there uh, on the night itself, uh, people who were there in the aftermath, some people who we've been introduced to already. We have had we we get an another scene. We've had a scene with Reverend Al Sharpton. He comes back again. Um, you have conversations with chaplains who are at the hospital, people who just happen to be there, um, uh, all, all all sorts of, of folks, and then the aftermath as well of like the uh, Australian man's brother is 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 back in town uh, and he comes and he's crying out for justice. Um, so so you have all sorts of folks interacting. It it ends with a pretty powerful conversation with Car Carmel Cato, the boy's father, Gavin Cato's father, oh, um, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, really, really powerful. It winds up being a monologue, but must have been in just an interview conversation with him, which he uh, says straight up, use all of my words for this. Um, just kind of gives the, the uh, you know, th there's always a question when you're doing verbatim theater, oral oral history or anything like that, where, where it's like, I, want, I wonder how much they knew this was going to show up in this way in the play. And that's a, such a powerful way to end the play. Both with his, both with his 
verbal permission to tell everything that he has said, and also just the way his account of that evening uh, was. It's it's a, a powerful statement at the end of the play. That's kind of where I'm going to end, end the synopsis. There's so much more going on, and I'm excited to get to kind of dive into parts of it in our conversation. Yeah, I mean, sort of by definition, this is not a plot play. This is not... Yeah. This is not a narrative play, really, even uh, in, in any traditional sense. The, the, the play is really pitched as or, or advertised as a, uh, in a this sort of journalistic verbatim documentary theater. Anna DeVere Smith is always very careful not to call herself a journalist, but that phrase is used about her a lot. Um, but but it's described as this thing, right, that looks at the Crown Heights riots. What happened? Why did they happen? Who were involved? But it's fascinating that the first half, maybe 40 percent, maybe not quite half, is not about the Crown Heights riots at all. I mean, doesn't even mention them. I'm not even sure Crown yeah. Heights appears other than there's one little one where there's some kind of demographic information about the neighborhood. But there's interviews with people who definitely do not live in Crown Heights in that section. I mean, it's it's much more if I were if I were making a two act version of this play, if I were just going to restructure it, not move anything around, but just sort of relabel stuff. Like I might call Act One identity and Act Two the Crown Heights riots, although she subdivides it even further into these uh, titled sections, as you said. Yeah, yeah, and, and and each of those sections are kind of adding another facet, another pane of glass to the uh, stained glass window. However, you want to, yeah, however that's you want great. to. In- envision what's going on in this first one it's 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 providing the backdrop for what follows especially for you know imagining an audience arriving here not having experienced much of this or an audience arriving here and experience and and having experienced much of it perhaps not have experienced half of it um which is a really interesting way to think of this play because this play i mean we're talking about this play over 30 years after it premiered um so so an audience walking into it uh, maybe may may remember events of that particular situation, but maybe they don't. The audience that walked into it for the first time likely did have some knowledge of of uh, the situation, but perhaps not um, all the facets that are presented in this first identities, etc section of of the play. There's a really, really great example of that, and it might be my favorite monologue in the play, just for how specific and and interesting it is. It's very early in the play, and it's an interview with um, a, a Hasidic woman who is a, sort of at home. Um, we'll, we'll maybe talk about how Anna DeVere Smith structures each of these interviews, but it, for now, set that aside. The, the, basically, the interview is this story. Again, not, not a story of the Crown Heights riots at all. Nothing to do with that. Just an everyday life story. And the story is basically about how, based on the particular religious um, uh, uh, sort of rules, and, and, and I, I, rules is not the word I want. I want a much more respectful word than that that I can't grab at right now. But, but just by on the customs, the beliefs, the followings of this particular group. You know, at certain times, under certain uh, uh, time parameters, uh, these folks cannot do really any work at all. And in this case, that even includes turning on and off electric devices. Now, children under three are exempt from that because they, you know, I suppose there's a 
some sort of indication of their self-control, their understanding of the Torah, all that, blah, blah. So this woman describes how they were in the middle of this time and their three-year-old sort of by accident, just messing around, turns on the radio really loud. Now they can't turn it off because it's against the religious customs for them to turn on or off electric devices during this period. And it's starting to just drain everybody. It's loud. It's blaring. They can't like sort of trick the three-year-old into getting it turned back off. So this woman describes just going out into the street and finding a young black person. And, and because she knew, although you can be black and Jewish, he wasn't dressed in the traditional Hasidic garb that would have identified him as Jewish. So she says, I was pretty sure he was both black and not dressed in a Hasidic garb. So I was pretty sure he wasn't Jewish. So I went up to him and I said, hey, uh, I, I she can't ask him for help is the particular (laughs) stricture of this situation. Again, it's incredible specific. So she just sort of says my radio in my apartment, it won't turn off. It really stinks. And this black guy, yeah. oh, okay. And they go back up to their apartment. And again, she's trying not to ask for help. And eventually he's like, you know, the power button's right here and turns it off and right. leaves. And she's like, I-, I am sure that he went back to his friends and talked about how stupid Jewish people are. They don't even understand how to work their own radios. And I mean, that interview is just so good. Not only does it show you, does it give this portrait of a culture that's, at least, I mean, at least for me, totally different than how I live my life. So there's right, some right. like the sort of empathy created by specificity. But then you also get a little picture of how ignorance and misunderstanding create division. Right. If she's right that this person goes back and goes like these Jewish families, they don't even know how to operate their radios just because there's a there's just a lot. There's a gap in understanding between cultures and you can see her lay the seeds for how that gap grows and grows until it becomes violent. Yeah. Yeah. So so that that's just a perfect uh, I'm going to try to unpack this because I feel like there's like so many layers of it in my head. That's just a perfect example of uh, trying to expose people to to another culture and and the kind of uh, 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 living right next door to a whole other universe of experience that that many of us go through. Um, and also, it, it's such an exemplar. We use that word at the start of the show of what this kind of theater does because it's it's not journalism um it's 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 not you're not just in there looking for the facts of this day um it's 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 kind of got I, I i'm a i i do part-time chaplaincy work and it's and it's an interesting sort of uh, comparison to that of like a really compassionate um engaging with someone letting them tell fully their story. I don't know exactly how these interviews work, but I imagine uh, the, the introduction of my script has a great story from Anna Devere Smith about trying to teach her students how to go do these sort of uh, collecting of verbatim uh, oral histories from folks. And she has had a student who went and she said, unfortunately, the student wound up just telling the, the person they were supposed to be in- interviewing all about her life and the things that they were <laughs> that were going on instead of collecting and trying to be as present to this person and learning about this person so that they can represent them as as um, as truly as possible, and so so eventually Anna Devere Smith says so. I, I started doing it more often myself, um, and so the the way that uh, this particular type of theater encourages the artist to go have a compassionate listening conversation with someone, learn something about their life, and not just not just the way like a chaplain would to kind of listen and help them process their own story, but then 
takes that story and brings it in the most compassionate way or yeah, I think compassionate way is the way I want to say that um, represents that person in such a compassionate way so that their story is told to people who would never have had the chance to go into that person's living room and hear that story for themselves is such an awesome part <laughs> of, of this kind of uh, theater that makes it different from the work of journalism, different from the work of like a chaplain, different from so many ways that we get stories of other people's lives. Um, it provides a really um, uh, awesome verbatim, uh, 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 compassionate way to engage with someone who you may never, ever have the chance to meet. Absolutely. And that that like sort of compassionate specificity really plays out in how she's constructed the script before each of the scenes, I guess you'd call them, or the monologues, yeah, yeah. Or the interviews, whatever. I mean, again, they're, they're presented all as monologues. And it's there's this weird theatrical thing. This was not the point I was going to make, but I just think it's cool because, of course, she's the one who conducted almost all these interviews. So in the scene, like in the theatrical thing that she created when it was her doing it. She is playing the person that she is interviewing in the scene, right? So there's like right. her as the person, but then there's also like an, an imaginary her in the scene because all of these people, well, not, maybe not every single one, but but the the, the um, generally the people that are giving these monologues, these characters are aware of it as an interview. They talk to yeah. this person who has clearly asked them a question. They reference the person. They occasionally there's sort of gaps where another question is asked in our imagination. So the, I mean the the fact of the interview is very present. And so then what, I mean if you think about Anna Devere Smith herself doing it, it's like she's herself as the interviewer in our imaginations. But then she herself is the person being interviewed right there yeah. on stage. I mean it's just it's like whoa. Talk about just like layers yeah. of meta-ness. Yeah, yeah. The the way that it comes off, at least so. So I, I watched a little bit of the 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 PBS uh, um, production. I'll say um, of 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 this play and the the interestingness of that. What you're talking about, this sort of like super meta thing that's happening, at least in that model. As you're watching it, because she's looking right into the camera, and I imagine on stage is looking right at the audience. Um, yes. Uh, you have this sort of sense that you are the interviewer. Which means you're um, her. Is, that's yeah. right, because that's the next <laughs> level. Because I kept saying she's like, she is there herself in our imaginations. But that's not quite right, is it? We're her. Yeah. We become Anna Devere Smith so that Anna Devere Smith can become another person. I mean, it's uh -huh. just like, what in the world? Just <laughs> it is. crazy it is, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. back to the point I was making about how the, the, the scenes are structured. So before each of these scenes, interviews, monologues, whatever, there is a, a little stage direction, of course. And what I love about them in this particular version of the script, uh, th this was not the case as consistently in House Arrest, but House Arrest also had a lot of like historical documents and stuff different than this play. Um, the, 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 the little stage direction is literally just a description of the event of the interview. Now, and there's a couple of them where she says, like, this was an interview, but I turned it into a speech or this was a speech that I was there or saw the video of. But but almost across the board, it's really just a description of the interview itself, not like the sort of theatrical thing that happens later. There's a specificity yeah. of pointing towards the actual event. Here's an example from late in the play, an interview with Henry Rice called Knew How to Use Certain Words. This is what's at the top. 
Thursday, November 21st, 1991. The Jackson Hole Restaurant on Lexington in the 30s in Manhattan. Lunchtime, dimly lit, a reddish haze on everything. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Mr. Rice, very neatly dressed, is eating a large, messy hamburger and horizontally chopped pickles. I mean, look at this. Listen to that. Horizontally chopped pickles. Why does he include that? That's crazy. It's awesome. Drinking a Miller Lite, (laughs) beer in bottle next to a red plastic glass. He's wearing a baseball clap, moving on, and blah, blah, blah. Heavy new Timberland boots, blah, blah, blah. He's struggling to eat without making a mess of the food. At some point, sits up from food and has his right hand or fist on his hip. We want a detail. Right hand or fist on his hip. A very unaffected but truly authoritative stance. Good natured, handsome, healthy. I mean, it's like there are these things that she says, look at this. Look at this specific. Look at the little detail. The horizontally chopped pickles are for some reason included in this script. Yeah, yeah. It really grounds. I I don't know. I feel like so. So. Uh, not often, but sometimes, especially in scripts of a certain uh, age. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, Eugene O'Neill. Um, the <laughs> uh-huh. There are somewhat overbearing whole novels written as a character yeah, enters right, the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and those those sorts of instances, I often feel the playwright as this sort of overbearing force that uh, kind of is showing their hand a little bit more than perhaps. They ought to. Um, however, in this, this is not my experience of this particular paragraph. This feels like such a welcoming into um, uh, such such a, a move towards uh, hospitality, towards whatever actor may play this someday. And also a really, uh, again, compassionate posture that this interviewer has had towards this person. They've noticed some really specific things about them. They've noticed their posture. They notice how they like to eat. They notice uh, how they like to drink, even though there's a you know an empty glass next to their beer bottle. Um, they they they, they uh, they've noticed all these really particular things about it, and not only is that uh, uh, an honoring of the original interviewee, um, but that's also a welcoming uh, uh, f- to the future artist trying to uh, represent this person as honestly as they can to step into that particular, not just that particular person, of course, but the, the cut pickles is that particular place. Imagine that particular place, that day, um, and try to worm your way into that moment as best as you can. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. It's not just that she just, you know, puts this in some notes at the back of the script about each person. They are included in the script in a way in which they are given authority. The particular and the specific is inserted, and I think that the way that they are inserted as a kind of stage direction for each interview demands that you as the producing artist listen and pay attention to the particulars there as well. Yeah, yeah, as as you ought to do, and not to get too far. Too, we've we've already been on the oral history soapbox a little bit, but that's that's what oral history is about. Um, you're supposed to pay attention to the specifics. You're supposed to give as much of an earnest representation of the person as as possible, even though you are not the person. Yeah, I mean, we've looked at some other examples of kind of verbatim theater oral history across no script. We, we often talk about one of the, 
you know, in terms of the actual writing that's being done, of course, these are excerpts. So she's not writing the words. It's more of um, a collage, assemblage, uh, arrangement, if you're going to use a musical term, right? And one of the tools that these artists have in this way, maybe even one of the most powerful tools they have, is the tool of juxtaposition, right? They take... Uh, interviews, excerpts, monologues, however you want to describe them, that did not happen near each other, next to each other, one after the other, that had nothing to do with each other in space and time, and put them next to each other on stage. So one of the more, it's a little more heavy-handed example, but it makes the point best, I think. There was a lot more subtlety in how she does it across the play. But there are two monologues back-to-back. One, Two interviews, again, whatever you want to call them. Uh, one is with uh, Minister Conrad, and it is a absolutely gut-wrenching depiction of the violence and brutality and lasting impact of slavery in America. The rape, the torture, the, the disidentification that was done to uh, black people across centuries of human history. And it's it's tough to read. I can't imagine performing it. I obviously I never would because of my skin color. But I also can't imagine seeing it performed. I mean, it's just it is tough, tough stuff about slavery. It's frank. It's it's in your face. It's important, but it's tough. And it is followed right up with uh, someone whose name I'm probably not going to be able to say exactly right. I apologize. Uh, Letty Cotton Pagrebin who tells the story of her uncle. It seems to me that it's framed as if the story is published in a book somewhere and that this person is reading just directly from the book uh, of their uncle who escaped the Holocaust. And they describe how their uncle, because he looked Aryan, uh, was sort of nominated by the village as the designated survivor and given this very important task from this Jewish community. You must survive at all costs because somebody has to tell these stories and it's going to have to be you because you at least look like you're Aryan. We can forge some papers and maybe get you out of here. But listen, you have to go, you have to survive no matter what because it has to be you. There's no one else. And so in order to do that, that and this is going to be terrible. I'm sorry for those of you who are, who are going to be shocked by this, but yeah, it worth, is shocking. Yeah, worth it to do. Quick content warning. This this story has to do with the Holocaust and this particular person's uh, route to survive it. So if that doesn't sound like something you want to hear, go ahead and jump forward about a minute. Yeah, I'll, I'll make it quick. It's it's <laughs> tough. It, he uh, so the Nazis apparently. I'm just I'm just repeating the story. Uh, suspect that his papers proving his Aryan descent, again, which are false, they suspect that they're false. And so they ask him to prove his loyalty to the German nation by forcing Jewish people into gas chambers at one of the death camps. And the way the story is told, among those people that he ends up having to participate in their murder are his family. But this idea that he had to survive to carry this message to American Jews by escaping Nazi Germany was so important that that, I mean, I, can you imagine the trauma and the the pain mm-hmm. and how awful that would be? And, and so both those are terrible, awful parts of human history. They are stories of what the awful violence and cruelty of one human to another can be. And, and and again, the two interviews in real life, nothing to do with each other in space and time. But Anne Devere Smith puts them one after another. 
one on stage and then the other. And you can see, I think it's that again, that's the one of the more heavy handed ones. So that one's a little more obvious what she's doing by juxtaposing those together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The putting them side by side, especially, you know, two stories from the two communities that are involved in this particular story. Um, and you you see the different facets of where they're coming from. You also see the 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 real pain that they're both coming from the the because because you know you see you see this stuff again uh not to not to draw more <laughs> not to draw more comparisons but you see it like a journalistic perspective or maybe if you saw this on the news when it happened um you see the event you see uh like just the the outcomes the thing that happened that night the two things that happened that night and you don't often though i'm sure some journalistic people who do their due diligence would try to do this you don't often get to go below the surface and see what uh has been has been happening what has already happened what is churning below the surface that brought about these events and it tells so much more of the story and this th this does that this does tell so much more of the story and uh and and subsequently when you get to the actual event in this play there's there's there it it continues to do just that it kind of like lays out um just like presents more for you to look at at least in my reading of it it does a a a a, a very good job of just like laying it out and letting you make conclusions or right. just experience because it, it this is one of those plays the way that Anna Devere Smith tells the story of the Crown Heights riots I, Crown Heights rather I think is part of what makes why she is careful about the word journalism because yeah. she is not taken in a bunch of different narratives and then produced her best understanding of the facts. Now, I also have not studied journalism or the philosophy of journalism. So if I'm misrepresenting the philosophy of journalism, I apologize. But there is no attempt to present a narrative of what happened. Instead, Anna Devere Smith is presenting many narratives of what happened. I mean, yeah. across the Crown Heights section, which again is probably the back 60 to 50 percent, there are so many different accounts of the individual events of, especially around the two murders. We don't go a ton into the riots, just a little bit, but especially around the day of the, the accident and then the subsequent murder. Uh, rather, I, I said that wrong. It's not two murders. The accident and then the subsequent murder. You know, it's, I couldn't tell you what happened for real. I mean, I know that some people died. But I don't, I don't exactly, I mean, there are people who think the driver was drunk. There are people who think, well, it's because this caravan speeds through the city because his life is in such danger that you get into these sort of dangerous situations. There are people who think uh, there were already city ambulances there treating the, the black children who were hit. So when the Hasidic ambulance, they apparently had a privately run ambulance, showed up and treated the Hasidic people, although that became an inflammatory point of the riot, that actually it's it's not the story that people think it is because there were city ambulances there treating the kids already. And there are people who say, that's definitely not true. I don't know who told you that. I was there. There were no other. I mean, so it's, you don't know. And it, there's no even yeah. attempt to say, this is what I think happens from Anna Devere Smith. Instead, the journey is, look at how identity and environment shape perception of these events. Yeah, and look at look at less the event, but more the fifteen people in that particular section who experienced that event, and how they're how they're how they identify how they've they've kind of existed previous to that event affected how they saw it. 
Um, uh, and, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You get to the end and you're like, there's no, like that you don't watch a video or something like that. You don't like see any like facts. You get a subjective account of people who were there. Um, and, and yeah, it, 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 it introduces you to the people more so than the event. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that is certainly the, the, the philosophy or the, the art theory behind this, right. Is like, here are the humans and their specific circumstances, their specific perspectives, make of it what you will. And, and in some ways, Anna DeFear Smith hands us the problem that the community of New York City was handed. Like, what? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What do we do? With, uh, I wasn't there. How do I know what happened? I don't have this, you know, my family history doesn't contain these these moments of incredible violence and trauma that you're describing. I haven't lived in this contentious relationship in this community forever. I wasn't there in the day. I don't know if the guy was drunk or not drunk or if the kids were playing in a certain way or not playing in a certain way. I didn't see the murder of this innocent Hasidic man. I mean, I what do I do now that I've been handed all of this to try to hold at once? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, how do you, how do you hold it together? How do you listen to each other's stories and how do you do it without responding back again, as the audience being Anna Devere Smith interviewing, how do you just hold the story that someone's telling you <laughs> and then, and then and in this case, move on to the next person's story, but how do you just hold that story? Don't add your perspective into it. Don't like, uh, kind of uh, respond back with something that it makes you think of. You're just there to hear the other person's story. And that sort of posture is a really unique one, uh, in, in our, uh, way that we have conversations as humans, at least now. Um, and, and yeah, and it, it's an awesome experience to get to be a part of in terms of how theater can prompt that sort of listening and that sort of conversation. Yeah, I, I think we're probably out of time for today, but that that's a good note to end on. The way that uh, art and theater can prompt listening as the kind of core of this script. I think that's so true. It, there's a, I mean, boy, Anna Devere Smith yeah. has made... I mean, has made this this particular vein of theater what it is. All credit to her. It's incredible what she's done. This is an incredible script. If you haven't read it, check it out. It reads pretty well. But also try to watch the American Playhouse recording of her performances. Uh, it's an it is so incredible what she can it do is. Yeah. as an actor. It's it it is it is awesome. It is wild. Um, uh, definitely definitely check in with that and watch it. It'll cover a lot of the stuff that we couldn't get into in this show, which is the like how the an actor it chooses to embody these uh, truisms about the the interviewee. It's on full display in that production. So definitely check it out. Definitely read the play. And when you do, we'd love to keep chatting about this play with you you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast uh hit those sites first have the conversations there um because uh, what that what we're hoping that that does is a give you a chance to chat with people who have read the play you know for sure we have but also to kind of extend the conversation out to the broader community around people who read plays interact with plays and want to talk about them with folks so find us on all those social media sites uh, we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those platforms we'd love to keep talking about this play with you absolutely if you like this conversation or any of our other conversations across our nearly completed season 10 or any of the other nine seasons, check them out. I know we're almost there. 
We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube. You can like us on Facebook and get a link every Monday there as well. Uh, just pass us on. See who in your life would like this this podcast. That'd be a great help to us just to recommend us to your family or friends. Thank you all so much for another great episode, for another great conversation. I will not be around next week as Jackson is joined by his partner, Hannah, for a conversation. We'll see you then. Yes, indeed. Until then, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. No Script, the podcast.